There we go. Okay, uh, you can go ahead and open to Romans chapter 11. And uh, let's, uh, let's read, uh, starting with some of the verses we were looking at a couple weeks ago. It's a little hard to maintain continuity when we miss other, every other week because of ice and snow, but, <laughs> but let's see if we can kind of remember what we were talking about a couple weeks ago and, uh, and, and then go on from there. But we, uh, we were looking beginning in verse 25. Let's read from there through the end of the chapter. We won't get that far today, being realistic. Uh, but let's read it all and, uh, and, uh, and then go from there. He says, For I do not want you to be, want you, brethren, to be uninformed of the mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion or come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, in order that He may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him, And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay, well, when we were together a couple weeks ago, we we were looking at verses 25, 26, 27, kind of in that area. And, uh, and I'm going to kind of overlap with some of the things we talked about uh, two weeks ago, partially because uh, having been uh, off for a week, we're, you know, just to kind of review and, and, and pick up, but also because some of the things we talked about need to be explored a little bit more. So, but what do you remember as we looked at verses 25 and 26, particularly a couple of weeks ago? What do you remember from that lesson, if anything? Paul's real hard that the people understand and not be misled by the word mystery because in their culture, mystery was they had somebody that they had to go to to explain this to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. They wanted them to know that it was just God had not revealed it. 
at that time, but that is available to everyone. It's very simple. You can get it. Okay, good, good. Has to do uh, what she's talking about there as far as the cultural aspect is is that within the culture of a time uh, in that particular time frame, and, and actually, as we saw, we have a lot of it even today, the idea of the mystery religions. And in the mystery religions, you had, you had these, this what we call esoteric or hidden knowledge. And it was only uh, accessible to special elite people who were particularly gifted at attaining this special elite knowledge. And, uh, and, and, and this is a very prevalent idea within the, within the culture of the time. And so, but, but what we saw is that when the Jews used the word mystery, they used it typically in their apocalyptic writings, their writings about the end times. And, and when they used the word mystery, they were referring to something that had once been hidden, but had been now revealed by God and was public information. It was available for everybody. And Paul extends it in his use of the word mystery when he uses it a number of times. He extends it beyond just discussion of apocalyptic things, end time things, but he uses it in reference to a number of spiritual truths which were at one time hidden but now have been been made known. So in Paul's writing, it doesn't just refer to future things but also refer, refers to other spiritual truths that we now know. Uh, an example would be uh, uh, the, the, the mis- what he calls the mystery of the Gentiles being included in God's plan and how that was somewhat of a mystery before, but now it's been made clear. So, so when Paul uses the word mystery, it's does, he doesn't use it in the sense of we think of a mystery today, you know, like a mystery show on television or, a, uh, you know, a Miss Marple or, a, <laughs> you know, or something like that, okay, or a Sherlock Holmes. It's not that kind of a mystery, and it's not the kind of a mystery that we had in the mystery religions but it's just something that we just couldn't know because it was a God thing and there was no way we could have known it unless God revealed it, but He has revealed it and we now have it as public information. So that's what uh, Debbie was talking about. Now, if so we, so we have this mystery. He talks, what is the mystery, this particular mystery that he's discussing? Okay, is this whole kind of, uh, to use a modern term, this interfacing of Jews and Gentiles, this interrelationship or interplay of Jews and Gentiles and how this all works together in God's redemptive purposes. How at one time the Gentiles were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, as he says in another place. They were excluded from that. But now they've been brought in and Israel seems to have and seems to now be excluded. And it's kind of like the tables have been turned and it's all very confusing. And Paul says, well, the reality is, yes, the Gentiles were out and the Jews were in and now the Jews are out and the Gentiles were in. But really, all this is working out so that ultimately, he says, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then he says, all Israel will be saved. So, this is the mystery. And looking at it from Paul's perspective in Paul's day, in Paul's time, it's all very confusing because God made all these promises to the Jews. He, you know, he 
He blessed them with all these things. He blessed them with the temple service and He blessed them with the law and He blessed them with the prophets and He even blessed them with the Christ according to the flesh. Uh, that is, that Christ came from, from, from the, the Jewish people according to the flesh. And, and so they had all these blessings and now they seem to be on the outs with God. This is all very confusing. And so, God gives to Paul this revelation of the mystery using the Old Testament Scriptures. And Paul sees, oh, this is God's plan. And then he shares it with us. And he says, now, I don't want you speaking to the Gentiles in Rome, and hence to you and I. I think we're all Gentiles, most of us in this classroom. Okay, speaking to us. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's part of it. What's the other part of it? The partial hardening has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then what's this? Then all Israel will be saved. Okay? And towards the end of our lesson two weeks ago, we stopped and we looked at three word, that three word phrase, so all Israel. You know, this is a classic case of uh, what Ron is always talking about, about me getting bogged down. <laughs> he doesn't use that term. But, but we stopped and we looked at three specific words. So, all Israel. Do you remember our discussion about that? Don't say no. Uh, so, all Israel. And we had a question about each one of those words. Do you remember what the question was? Or what the questions were. Well, I don't think I was here for that lesson, but I don't wonder what all. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So the question is, what does he mean by all? What, and what specifically is your question about the word all? Well, does that mean every Jew is going to be okay? Right? Precisely. Okay. Is he saying here that every single Jew is going to be saved? That's the question that that we get from the word all. Uh, do you remember what the question was that I raised in reference to the other two words? The question about the word so is simply to what does it refer? Okay? Uh, to what does it refer? Uh, in other words, as I pointed out, the word so, the word from which it's translated, the Greek word from which we get the word from which the word so is translated, is actually a word that, that has uh, the sense of in this way, or thus, thus, or in this way. So he's saying, when he gets to this verse, he's saying, in this way, it, all Israel will be saved. So that's, the, that's what the word means in the context, in this way. But... But as I mentioned, it can, the, the, the phrase in this way can point back to what he just said before that or what he's just talked about before that, which has been the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and then the jealousy being aroused in the Jews and they get saved. So, it could be, so he could be saying, in this way Israel will be saved by this jealousy that's aroused by seeing the mercy extended to the Gentiles. Or it can point forward to what he is just about to say in the following verses where he says, the Redeemer will come out of Israel and he will remove wickedness from Jacob and, uh, 
And uh, then he says, this is my covenant with them when I forgive their sins. So, the word so can actually point forward or backward. And, and you probably would be on fairly safe ground, however you, however you looked at it. I tend to think it's pointing forward that he's saying that in this way, all Israel will be saved when the Redeemer comes out of Zion. Okay? So, he's pointing forward to the Redeemer and Israel's response to the Redeemer. Okay? But uh, you may prefer the other, uh, and, and commentators kind of debate back and forth about which way it's pointing. Okay, so that was the question about so. What was the question about Israel? I don't remember either. I don't remember, but probably we to define Israel. Okay, and what are our options? <clears throat> Uh, right, okay. Well, uh, if, it's, if he's talking about spiritual Israel, he'd be talking about the elect. He'd be talking about all those who are going to get saved, okay? But that's kind of a tautology, isn't it? That's kind of a saying, a rhetorical tautology. That's kind of saying, well, all those who will get saved who are going to get saved. You know, he's not really saying a lot. So, just logically, it doesn't make sense to see it as a reference to spiritual Israel. But the other thing is that all the way through chapter 11, whenever he's talked about Israel, it's always been ethnic Israel. He's always been talking about ethnic Israel. So, if he changes in this verse, it's just kind of a sudden, abrupt change. And he's suddenly using Israel in a different sense than he's used it all the rest of the way through Genesis. So, the reference to... He's talking about that little... No, no, he's talking about he's talking about all Israel because he's been talking about how they've been disobedient and how they've been hardened. So he's not talking about he's not. That's a good point to bring up, though. He's not talking about just the remnant here. He's talking about he's talking about all of ethnic Israel. Okay, he's talking about all of ethnic Israel because the remnant never fell into that classification of the hardened. Okay that he's talked about. But here he's been talking about hardened Israel. So it's all of Israel. And then the question comes up, what does he mean by all? And does he mean every single Jew is going to be saved? And what we pointed out a couple weeks ago was that this phrase, all Israel, is used dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament. And when it's translated from Hebrew into Greek in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it has the identical wording that it has here. And in the overwhelming majority of cases where that phrase, all Israel, is used in the Old Testament, it does not refer to every single Jew, but rather is referring to a representative body that represents the totality of Israel. Usually a very large body of people that represents or is so large that it's as if it were all the totality of Israel. And we use the example of uh, the story of Absalom after Absalom uh, uh, led the insurrection against his father David and David fled Jerusalem and, and he had to leave behind his uh, his concubines and things, and then Absalom, it says he pitched a, had a tent pitched on the roof of the palace, and he had all of David's concubines brought to him in the tent, it says, in the sight of all Israel, it says. And it uses that phrase, and that's, a, that's just one example of the many dozens of times it's used that way. 
Well, obviously we know, we can assume, that not every single Jew was standing there at the base of the palace looking up on the roof, seeing what Absalom did. But that it was sufficiently public that it made it as though all of Israel had actually seen this. And this information gets spread, of course, uh, throughout Israel and serves Absalom's purpose of, of causing him to be despised in the, in the eyes of his father David. And uh, so a very gruesome, terrible story, of course. But it's illustrative of this idea that all Israel is not necessarily a reference to every single individual Jew, but it is such a vast number of them that it, it's as though all Israel. So it represents all Israel. So when Paul is saying, thus all Israel will be saved, as I understand it, as we answer those three questions about those three words, He's saying in this way, there's going to be this massive salvation of Jews. So much so that when we think of the Jews in that day, when we think of the Jews today, we don't think of them this way. But in that day, when we think of the Jews in that day, we're going to think of them as those who are saved. Okay? When you talk about the Jews, we're going to be thinking they're the saved people because such a vast number of them will fit in that category. That's how we will think of the Jews. Just like, uh, just like in Norman, you would think of Norman as people who are, you know, Norman is, uh, you know, is an OU city. You know, we, you know, we, uh, we're, we're OU fans. You know, well, not everybody in the Norman is an OU fan. But it's such an overwhelming majority that you can just classify Norman as a city that roots for OU. Well, Israel will be a people who, when you think of them, you will think of them as believers and you'll think of them as those who are saved. Okay. So he says, all Israel will be saved. But he said in this way, and as I said, that can point back to this whole phenomena of the jealousy that's aroused in them because of the mercy shown to the Gentiles. Or it could point forward to what he's about to say. And what he's about to say is that a Redeemer will come out of Zion or will come from Zion and will remove wickedness from Jacob. And he's quoting from the Old Testament there. And, 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 and he, says, uh, uh, he says, God says, this is my covenant that I have made with them, he says, when I forgive their sins. And so what what I believe Paul is saying here is he's saying all Israel is going to be saved in connection with the coming of the, of the deliverer out of Zion or from Zion. Okay. Now, Paul does an interesting thing here with his prepositions. Uh, in verse uh, 26, he's quoting from Isaiah 59.20 when he says the deliverer will come from Zion. And he uses that preposition from... But in Isaiah 59, verse 20, the preposition there is to. At least in all the extant copies of the manuscripts that we have. So commentators would go, why does Paul do that? Why does Paul change the to to from or out of? Okay. Actually, it's, it's from. So why does, he, 
why does he why does Paul change it? Did he change it because he had some manuscript <laughs> that actually had it different and he was quoting that man? Or did he intentionally change it? And I think uh, I think the evidence, <laughs> at least as near as I can tell, is that Paul intentionally changed the quote there. And he changed the quote from from the preposition to Zion, the deliverer will come to Zion and will remove wickedness from Jacob. And he and he changed it to the deliverer will come from Zion and will remove Jacob wickedness from Jacob. Now, in reality, it's still pointing to the same basic time in history, right? What, what, what would that be? Okay, it's a, the second advent, right? The second coming of Christ. It's just talking about the end times, the apocalypse, okay? The conclusion, the wrapping up of all time, uh, of all things. And, and, and so it's pointing to the same period of time. But in the, but in the, uh, in the original verse in, in Isaiah, the emphasis is on the deliverer coming to Zion. But in the way Paul uses the verse, the emphasis is on the deliverer coming out of or from Zion. And so it appears that Paul is using Zion here, not in the sense of a reference to Jerusalem, but he's using it in the sense that it's used in Hebrews chapter 12, which is what? How is Zion used in the latter part of Hebrews? Okay, it's a reference to heaven. He talks about the he talks about the two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He's, and he's compl- he's comparing Mount Sinai to heaven, and and so it's really what Paul's emphasis here is the idea of the divinity of the deliverer. Okay, not just that he's coming to Israel, but that he is divine. That he's coming out of heaven. And when, the, when this divine one comes in association with that is going to be this salvation of Israel. So, so we've not seen that salvation of Israel yet. Well, one of the reasons we've not seen it is because we're not in that time frame to which Paul is pointing. But in that time frame to which Paul is pointing, which has to do with the end times and all the things that happen with the end times and the coming out of Zion of the, of the Deliverer, in that time, this is when this is going to happen, that there's going to be this overwhelming spiritual renewal among the people of Israel. Okay? Now, so very clearly, when he's talking here about the deliverer, this is very clearly understood to be a messianic reference. So he's, he's clearly talking about the Messiah. And so what Paul is telling us here is that this spiritual renewal, this this being shown mercy as he calls it, this spiritual renewal in Israel is connected in Paul's teaching directly with their response to the Messiah, who is whom? Who is the Messiah? Christ, Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. Now this is important. Because we had a development within, uh, within Christendom uh, post-Holocaust. So, beginning in the middle of the last, middle of the last century. Okay? You had this development of uh, theological thinking within Christendom that 
that began to see this anticipated spiritual renewal of Israel as not being a turning to Jesus, but rather as a returning to faithfulness to the Old Testament law. And so as as these particular scholars would read this chapter, read this passage, and anticipate this spiritual renewal of Israel, they didn't really think of them Israel coming to Christ, but they thought of Israel coming to back to their, where they were originally, to adherence to the law and faithfulness to the law and faithfulness to Yahweh, etc. Okay. Now, that was prompted... Uh, that was prompted by the church's reaction to the Holocaust. Okay. Because we had the Holocaust, and it was such a horrific, horrific thing as the church became really aware of what had happened. Okay. And so the church is trying to make sense of this. And, and part of, the, part of the, the tragedy of the Holocaust is the complicity of the church, particularly the complicity of the German church with the Holocaust. And uh, some of that arose from just a whole thread of anti-Semitism that ran through the church for many centuries and uh, has been very pronounced and continues to be very pronounced even in Europe today. Uh, And and so out of that grew this, this... uh, complicity of the church in participation with at least acquiescence and in some cases uh, over participation in the Holocaust. And so as a, once the horror of the Holocaust became known to us, that some, some within the church reacted to that and to the extreme of, of saying, well, you know, we need to forget about this whole thing about the Jews becoming Christian because that really led to this whole Holocaust thing. So we need to realize we were off track, that we weren't thinking right. So really, when Israel is renewed, they're, they're, not, they're going to be faithful to God, but they're not going to be believers in Jesus. Okay. And so... Uh, and I, I don't bring this up. I don't know how many of you have encountered this, but you probably encounter this if you do much reading or thinking uh, uh, in, uh, on this type of issue or reading uh, theology or whatever. You may encounter this this idea. Well, the problem is that Romans chapter 11 closes the book on that. <laughs> Romans chapter 11 makes it very clear. Paul says the spiritual renewal of Israel is going to happen in connection with their response to the Deliverer who comes from Zion. Paul is very clear in his mind that the spiritual renewal of Israel is as they turn to Christ, as they turn to Jesus, and as they, as they experience the forgiveness of sins that's provided in Christ. So, Paul is very explicit, I think, and very clear on that. So, we... While certainly the church needs to be uh, very, very contrite and broken over its participation in the Holocaust, it should not do so to the point that it forfeits the only real thing that can save the Jews, which is their embracing of Christ. Okay, so so now Paul goes on from that and. And he says in verse 28, he says, From the standpoint of the gospel, 
They are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of the choice, and some translations you'll notice in italics put in God's choice there because he does use the definite article. He's definitely referring to a specific choice that has been made. Uh, clearly, it has been God's choice. And so I think it's fair that the word God's inserted there to help clarify our understanding. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So, from, from Paul's standpoint, where he's standing at his point in history, and we're in essentially, in, in regard to that, we're in essentially the same point, okay, is from Paul's standpoint, or from Paul's place in history, as he looks at the situation, he says, pertaining to the gospel, as it has to do with the gospel, the Jews now are enemies of it. They're enemies of the gospel. They're hostile to the gospel. That was true in Paul's day. It's every bit as true today, right? I mean, of course, we all probably know some Jews who are believers, but in large measure, the people of Israel are hostile to the gospel. But Paul says they are hostile to the gospel for your sake, speaking to us Gentiles. So, yes, when we consider the Jews' relationship to the gospel, they are enemies. But the fact that they are enemies of the gospel, God is using that, instrumentally using that, so those Gentiles can get saved. But that is not the end of the story. And this is what Paul wants those Gentiles in Rome to understand as they are relating to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ and to the other Jews, the non-believing Jews. Is that not the end of the story, that they are enemies for the sake of the gospel, for, the, for your sake, enemies of the gospel for, the, for, for your sake? That's not the end of the story. But the, the real end of the story is from the standpoint of the promise that God has made to the fathers, they are beloved. So when we look at Israel, we may think, oh man, boy, they're really hostile. <laughs> they really don't like this gospel thing. And they don't like us telling them about Christ. And they, they repudiate that. And so that's how we view them. But Paul says you've got to step back and you've got to remember that God made certain promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And based on those promises, because of his faithfulness to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel are still beloved of God. How do we know that? We know that, he says, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, there are those who teach that there are those that teach that, yeah, God all made all these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But but Israel rejected their Messiah. They rejected Christ. And they rejected God. And they rejected the Gospel. And so God has abandoned the Jews and left them to themselves. And He's gone on to save the Gentiles. 
and and the Jews are no longer, you know, all those promises now that that were made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob long ago. We can spiritualize them. We can allegorize them. We can do different things with them. But one thing we shouldn't think is that they still pertain literally to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. But Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I what? saw proof of that on May 14, 1948. Not that I was alive then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there's a, there's a, there is one uh, possible expression of that point, yes. But when he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, I ask myself, what is he referring to when he's talking about the gifts and the calling of God? Well, you'll, you may remember, I don't know if you do remember, but when we started chapter 9, we talked about some of the gifts. Notice in chapter 9, he says, in verse 4, he says, "...who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons." and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. I think that when Paul says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, the gifts that some of the gifts he has, certainly some of the gifts that he has in mind are these that he talked about at the beginning of this whole discussion at the early part of chapter 9. These are irrevocable gifts. God's not going back on this. He's not taking these things away. The question Paul asked there early in chapter 9 is, has God's word to Israel failed? And his answer to that is the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He has given these gifts to Israel and he's not taking them back. And he says the calling of God is irrevocable. And I ask, well, what is the calling he's referring to? Well, he, he talked about that calling back in, in, uh, in, chapter, uh, in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. He's talked about this calling. And specifically, you'll remember uh, earlier in our study of this section, he talked about, he talked about uh, being called the people of God. People who, and he actually uses it. He uses an Old Testament reference about Israel and he applies it to the Gentiles. So those who are not a people shall be called the people of God. But he used a reference from the Old Testament that originally referred to the Jews being called the people of God. You see, God told Abraham long, long, long time ago, He said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be my people. Your physical descendants are going to be my people. I'm going to call them my people. And when God calls you His people, that's an irrevocable calling. Now, we can, I think it's fair when we think about this verse to apply it very broadly in our own lives and the promises that God has given to us and the calling that's on our own lives. I think we can apply it. But let's just understand that in the context, in the chapter, primarily he's referring to the gifts and the calling of God on Israel as a people. Okay. That's its first interpretation and its first application. Okay has a broader sense or a broader application because the principle is true, the faithfulness and the immutability of God. So we, would, we could see it would apply uh, in a broader sense. But certainly in the context, this is how Paul uses it. It becomes the basis by which he can say, all Israel will be saved. 
that a Redeemer will come out of Zion and, uh, and that Redeemer will forgive their sins and remove their transgressions because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, even though I stand here in the first century and I look at this condition of my brethren in Christ, Paul says, and I look at it and it looks so hopeless, it looks so absolutely beyond redemption, I know that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So then he says in uh, let me get back over there in uh, in verse 30 he begins to illustrate how we know this. Okay, so we so we look at we look at Israel and we we look at the Jews today and we see how disobedient they are. Now, when Paul uses the word disobedience here, we need to understand that he's not simply talking about a condition of disobedience. But he's talking about a condition of being hardened in disobedience. Because that's what he was talking about earlier, right? He 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 said a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And then he goes on to talk about their disobedience. So when he's talking about their disobedience, he's talking about their disobedience within the context of this condition of being having been hardened by God. Okay. And remember, we've talked all about this hardening. We've talked about how, how hardening is both judicial and salvific. We've talked about that, right? Okay. We'll see that more in this passage here. Okay. But... But so when, when Paul is talking here about the disobedience of Israel, he's talking about not simply their initial disobedience, but their present condition. That they've not only been disobedient, but now they have been hardened in that disobedience. And so he says in verse, uh, verse uh, 20, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 30, he says, for just just as you once were disobedient, and then he talks about the Jews. So, so what Paul is trying to say is, okay, now look, we're looking at Israel, and they're in this, they're in this state of hardened disobedience. And so, when we look at Israel, we go, how could it ever be that they would ever obtain mercy? How could these people who are in this hardened state of disobedience. How could it ever be? I mean, I can't imagine them ever being shown mercy. I can't imagine them ever being saved. And Paul's using these terms interchangeably in this passage. So all Israel will be saying, saved. They will be shown mercy. He's using them interchangeably. Okay. So, but as I look at Israel, I go, oh, how could this ever be? Well, he says, Let me show you how it could be. You remember how you were once disobedient? You remember how you were once disobedient, he says, verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient? Well, how were we disobedient? How were the Gentiles disobedient? We were not just casually disobedient. According to Romans 1, we were in a state of hardened disobedience. Remember? God gave them over, verse 24, Romans 1, 
Verse 26 of Romans 1, God gave them over. Verse 28 of Romans 1, God gave them over. We were in a state of judicial hardening of disobedience. Remember how you once were disobedient, he says? But you were shown mercy? Because of their disobedience? So he says, now just, he's saying to these dear Gentile believers in Rome, he's saying, just go back and think. If you're having a hard time figuring out how this could possibly ever happen with the Jews, just go back and think about your own experience. You were in a condition of hardened disobedience. And you were shown mercy because of their disobedience. And so, he says, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. And so, he says, in the same way, if Israel is in a state of hardened disobedience now, just like you experience mercy, they could experience mercy too. Okay? So, how do you get somebody who's, from, who's in a, hardened, a state of hardened disobedience? How do you get them from that to where they're they're being shown mercy? How do you get them there? Well, God used the disobedience of the Jews to provide the opportunity for us to be shown mercy, right? And that's what he's been arguing through the chapter. He's been arguing that God, God used the disobedience. So the Jews were disobedient, and by their disobedience, or because of their disobedience, the door was shut to them, and the gospel came then to the Gentiles. Now, I want to make a careful distinction here. Paul is not saying that there was something intrinsic to the disobedience of the Jews that necessitated mercy to the Gentiles. So it's not, it wasn't that there's something intrinsic in disobedience that precipitates mercy. No, it's just simply that God providentially and in His sovereign plan from eternity past, knowing that Israel would be disobedient, made a plan whereby He could use their disobedience as an instrument, as a means by which to get the gospel to us Gentiles so we can be saved. So, so their disobedience is an instrument that God has used. It's a means that God has used to get the gospel to us Gentiles so we can be saved. And then Paul says, now, just like God used their disobedience as an instrument to show mercy to you people, you Gentiles, who were in hardened disobedience. In the same way, he says, God can take these Jews who are in a state of hardened disobedience, judicially hardened because of their initial rejection of God, subsequently judicially hardened further in their disobedience, He can take those 
And he can use the instrument of the mercy shown to you Gentiles to provoke the jealousy in the Jews and make them desire that same mercy and so they come to Christ. Yeah. As some of you know, for the last couple of years or so, I've been doing a lot of study and a lot of thinking about what we call the problem of evil. I've written a massive 60-page paper on the problem of evil. And, and because it's, a, it's an area, it, re- it really is the most serious objection that people raise to the gospel and to the idea of God. The problem of evil being, actually there's really two problems of evil. There's the emotional problem of evil. That's another one and I also deal with that in that paper. But, but the philosophical or logical problem of evil just simply says this. If God is all powerful and God is all good, how come there's evil in the world? It's a good question, isn't it? And if you're going to be effective in evangelism, you've got to be able to answer that question well. Okay. <clears throat> and so the question is, how can God be all good and all powerful? And have created or allowed there to be a world in which evil exists. Well, you know, like I said, I took 60 pages to answer it in my paper, so I'm not going to go into all that now. But what Paul is dealing with here is that same issue. Is that, or an aspect of that issue of the problem of evil. That what we see is that this good, loving, compassionate, merciful God has a purpose, and that purpose is that he wants to show mercy to all. And so, it says, he has hardened all in disobedience. He has, he says, confined them, restricted them. One lexicon says it's like a fishnet. And we've been caught in this fishnet of disobedience. And when we think about that, when you read the first part of that verse where he says, for God has shut up all in disobedience. Boy, that sounds like a pretty cruel God, doesn't it? But only if you don't read the last half of the verse. God has shut up all in disobedience for a purpose in order that he may show mercy to all. And so Paul here is reaching the conclusion of his whole argument of chapters 9, 10, and 11, and particularly his argument in chapter 11. But he's reaching his conclusion. And as I started chapter 9, I thought, if I were going to write a title for the... For chapters 9, 10, and 11. If I were to put a title over chapters 9, 10, and 11, I thought the title I would put on it is Mercy to All. Because that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is telling us. That in all of this working of God, it is that He might show mercy to all. Now, let me just back up for a second. <clears throat> because in, he, in the context, of course, He has been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles as people groups. Okay, we've made a big point of that. He's been talking about them as people groups. He's not been talking about all individual Jews or all individual Gentiles, but he's been talking about them as people groups. Okay. And so, technically, when we get to this verse where he says, he has 
So God has uh, shut up all in disobedience in order, in order that he might show mercy to all. Technically, we might have to say, well, what he means here is that he shut up both Jews and Gentiles in disobedience. That it's not a reference to all people. It's a reference to these all groups, all of the groups he's talking about, which are the Jews and the Gentiles. However, Paul does an interesting thing here. I didn't, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't see any commentators who picked up on this, but it's interesting to me. That, that Paul does not use here a Greek word that could be used to mean both, which is what you usually use when you're talking about all of two groups or all of two things, right? When you're talking about all of two things, you don't use the word all, do you? You use the word both, right? But Paul doesn't use the word both here. He uses the word all. And so it seems to me that Paul is trying to say to us, listen, I've been talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, but there's a principle here. That God has shut up all in disobedience. And in fact, we'd have to admit, wouldn't we? That it's not just that the Jews have been shut up in disobedience and that the Gentiles have been shut up in disobedience, but that I was shut up in disobedience. And you were shut up in disobedience, were you not? We were all hardened in our sin, judicially, by the hand of God, because we had turned our backs on Him. We were hardened in our sin, judicially. But we were also hardened in our sins salvifically. Not only judicially that, we, that it was the just consequence of our rejection of God and so He hardened us in our sin, but He did it salvifically in order that He might show mercy to all. And so I discover that through this whole marvelous plan of God and all this talk about hardening and everything, and there are many people who read Romans 9, 10, 11, and every time they read about the hardening, they, they think, well, God has just hardened some people because He wants to send them to hell. God doesn't harden people to send them to hell. God hardens people to show them mercy. That's what the verse says. He has shut up all in disobedience in order that He might show mercy to all. And so what we see with God, and what's fascinating here, is that, is that with the Gentiles, God used the disobedience of the Jews. But with the Jews, God uses the mercy shown to the Gentiles. Right? So, so God has this goal of showing mercy. He's got a purpose to show mercy to all. And, and when some are disobedient, God, because He is this great, sovereign, all-powerful God, providential God, can take the disobedience of some to show mercy to God, or He can take the obedience and the mercy shown to others, and He can take that. And what I'm trying to tell you is, God's got a purpose. And whether we are evil or good, God is not thwarted in accomplishing His purpose. This goes into this whole issue of the problem of evil. 
Okay? There's, like I said, there's much more to it. But one of the keys to understanding the problem of evil is that evil never thwarts the good purposes of God. It never thwarts it. It always, God is sovereignly, providentially able to use evil in order to accomplish good and to use good to accomplish good. Now, you had a question over here. Yeah. I believe it does to the extent that we take the verse to understand that he's talking about all in this. Like I said, uh, within the context, first of all, we have to understand he's talking about Israel and Gentiles as groups and that God shut up those two. But because, of, as I say, because of his use of the word all, rather than the, rather than the word both, because he used the word all, I think Paul is suggesting, yes, it applies to all individuals as well. All individuals have been shut up in disobedience in order that God might show mercy to all individuals. And in that sense, I would answer your question, yes. I do think that this verse is established, along with many others. This verse does not stand by itself. But I believe that this verse, along with many others, expresses the desire of God to show mercy to everyone. Uh, uh, But the question then is, and I'll just briefly touch on this, the question then is, does that teach universalism? Does that teach that because God did this to show mercy to all, that He's going to save all? But Paul does an interesting thing here. Actually, it's a very, very common in the Greek. He does an interesting thing here when he says that, that God shut up all in disobedience. He uses uh, in grammar what we call the indicative mood. It means this happened. God did this. But when he gets to the second part, that he may show mercy to all, he uses what we call the subjunctive mood. Okay? And the subjunctive mood leaves a little bit of question open. Okay, it's not it's not that this did happen or will happen, but rather that this, as it's translated in every translation, may happen. Okay, now this gets pretty complicated and I don't want to go into this. So it could be it could be that God did this. He that he shut up all in disobedience. For the purpose of, and that's clear clear in the Greek, if the idea is for the purpose that he may show mercy to all, okay? It It could mean that because this was God's purpose, it irrevocably will happen. In which case, if this verse is talking about individuals, it would be teaching universalism. But it's also very, it's just as legitimate to say that it is merely a possibility, not a certainty. So that, God shut up all in disobedience in order to have provide the possibility of mercy being shown to all. So God's purpose was to show mercy to all, but it remains a possibility, not a certainty. Okay? That way we avoid the clearly unbiblical teaching of universalism, because the Bible is very clear in many other places uh, uh, that universalism is false. So, uh, so there's a lot of issues and some of it goes into how you translate the Greek and that sort of thing. But you have to understand that you have to understand that 
that even Greek translators are driven by their theology. So, so oftentimes you encounter passages and, and, and there's an option in the Greek one way or another. What you'll see in the way a particular translator translates it, you see his theology. Okay? So this passage could be translated that it's a certain thing that all would be shown mercy. If that's how you translate it, then you have to understand, if you want to avoid the pitfall of universalism, you have to understand he's only talking about Israel and Gentiles as a group. Or you fall into the pitfall of universalism. But if you translate it that it was God's purpose to make it possible to show mercy to all, employing the, employing the subjunctive mood on the second part of the verse, then you can understand that this can apply to all individuals without implying universalism, everybody will be saved. Okay, that got a little technical at the end. Next week, we'll pick up the grand finale. These are verses I've been looking forward to getting to all the way through Romans 9, 10, 11. Paul's great doxology at the end. Okay?